I am considering all I've known and seen over the last 40 years, 38 years of permaculture, and what's pushing me to distill it into some sort of essence. One of my discomforts is our audience, and it has struck me again and again, you know, almost like a blow to the solar plexus, that permaculture is being taught mainly to middle-class Westerners. And we say work on the margins. Well, the margins are invisible. The margins are these people that we don't see. And if permaculture just keeps teaching someone with a backyard and some farmland or a nice balcony in a flat and a community garden, we have absolutely lost the plot. Well, welcome everybody back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and today in episode 52, I share a wonderful conversation with my dear friend and one-time teacher and mentor, Rosemary Morrow, who's going to be speaking from her 38 years of experience working with permaculture all around the world. Before we launch right into it, I'm going to share a couple of news items. The first one, given that the sponsor of this show is well, me, I'm going to tell you a little bit about these online courses on holistic decision-making. So I booked in three as a bit of an experiment. Two are happening now. The third starts on September 30, a couple of hours a week over six weeks, resourcing people to dive deep into their hearts and souls and articulate the core ingredients of a fulfilling, impactful life on their own terms, and then to make decisions proactively day by day to realize those deep values. Just finding it such a joy. I'm really blown away by the degree to which this approach lends itself to an online format and participants are, it's the level of engagement and the, the level of the uptake, the ability to translate this stuff into day-to-day life. So that's feeling like a really fresh and alive new direction for me. I'm going to run this this third iteration starting September 30 uh, and then take a break for three or four months, and I think I'll, I'm sure I'm going to return to it. Probably won't be till February next year, though. So if you're interested in checking that out, head across to holisticdecisionmaking.org. Holisticdecisionmaking.org. Uh, in other news, the reading landscape documentary that David Holmgren and I are collaborating to bring forth into the world, along with uh, my amazing videographer friend David Ma, is um, really is really moving right now. We've just booked in some follow-up um, shoot dates. And the stuff we've already got in the bag is quite phenomenal. So um, in the coming weeks, we'll we'll get the website, which will be at readinglandscape.org, alive. And I'll keep you posted and start to share um, snippets from that truly enjoyable process. Apart from that, I've been trying not to do too many kind of consultancy jobs, but it's hard to resist, you know. I, I always enjoy it so much. And so I've been out on various properties in the last few weeks and just such an exquisite and delicious experience to have developed a kind of a process and approach that it's so relaxed and yet so powerful. Asking the right questions, focusing attention on the right places at the right time, resourcing and educating the people I'm working with to, to hold and lean into their own process and finding the most beautiful um, configurations and possibilities revealing themselves as we, as we go along. On that note, I'm very excited that tomorrow night will be the next in our six-weekly cycle of uh, gatherings, online gatherings for the community of patrons that are supporting this project at the Community of Practice tier. And so these are folk that have been along to patreon.com slash making permaculture stronger, and they're kind enough to be voluntarily supporting this project, making it all possible. 
Every six weeks we dive into certain topics and then we get someone on the hot seat to uh, collaboratively support them and, and, our, and each other to evolve and, and enhance our design process um, intelligence, literacy, impact and so on. And so tomorrow I'm really excited I'm going to be exploring and sharing some of my own thoughts, developing thoughts as part of what I call living design process around the difference between field thinking and systems thinking and in particular how a lot of the systems thinking that permaculture adopts, a lot of the systems thinking we see talked about in permaculture books is actually, uh, it has a lot of potential to shift and evolve towards life, that it, that it really has a kind of a, um, a machine-based way of looking at the world written into it that doesn't really do permaculture too much justice. So I'm excited to share that distinction. Um, and then after that, we're going to have Michael Wardle, one of the, um, one of the, a member of the, our community. And last time he shared uh, a design template he's been using to teach permaculture design on, on permaculture design courses. And that was really wonderful. And this week we're going to get him in the hot seat and we're going to grill him and poke him and prod him and ask difficult questions and use the amazing work he's done as a springboard to co continue co-evolving our own understandings. So if, if anyone's interested to hear more about that, you're welcome to get involved. It's, it's ticking along. There's a, I don't know, there's like 16 or 20 of us at most gatherings and it doesn't need to grow at all, but it is there as an option for those of you that are ready to, to take the leap and join a community that's all about enhancing our design process capacities. I think that's enough for now. We'll jump on into the chat with Ro. It's a goodie. I know you'll love it. Thanks so much to Ro for, for coming back after 52 episodes. She was our very my very first ever guest. And I think I won't have an outro. I've said enough. So um, enjoy. And I'll catch you in episode 53, which I believe will be David Holmgren sharing the first of a couple of uh, two-part series on his also like 40-ish year journey with permaculture design process. Wow. Here I am talking once again to Ro Morrow. It's been a while. Good morning, Dan. Lovely to speak to you again. I think I've missed you in my life. Likewise. Well, you have more contact, but as life gets busier, we drift to the immediate things. Yeah. We do, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's so great to reconnect. And one of the reasons, as I said when I emailed, was you were the very first ever guest on this podcast. And at that stage, I didn't know if you were going to be, the, that was going to be it, like one conversation, and then there was two, and then there was three. And now there's been over 50. And as, as the 50th happened, I was like, oh, I want to get a bit of a ritual happening here where, where I get row back on every 50 episodes. So here we are. I'll be able to find it. I'm wondering because it was a measure for me of maybe how much my thinking's changed or what I've experienced and consolidated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, would it be... It was released in June 2017. So we probably had it in early June or, you know, second, or yeah, second week of June. I was down there in Castlemaine with you. That's right. And I remember I didn't know anything about podcasting. We were in an echoey room, <laughs> but it was still great. And, a lot, and so many people listened to it and appreciated it. Thousands, thousands. And here we are. And, the, and my main intention was really to reconnect. And I'd just love to hear, because as you said, we, we're busy with our various projects and stuff. So we don't, we're not really that tuned into how things have been evolving and changing. And I'm sure a lot has evolved and changed and grown for you in the last three years. So I'd, I'd really just want to love to hear what's alive for you and what, what you're up to with your amazing work in permaculture well globally because i know you know you're still involved in a lot of overseas projects as well mm. so how are you what's going on well i'm well what's going on i'm consolidating i'm hibernating i'm actually fermenting i think oh. i am considering all i've known and seen over the last 40 years 38 years of permaculture 
And what's pushing me to distill it into some sort of essence is primarily the fact that I'm writing a book. So it started off as a third edition, but it looks as if it'll be a new book. And the reason for this is that it was impossible to take the old book and just add a little bit on. And so over the last few years, I've become very, very uncomfortable with permaculture as it is and as it's taught. So really considerable unease with lots of things, with individual topics, with approaches and all, all the issues around permaculture. I still find the basic curriculum totally like a sacred text that we have to use and I haven't and despite massive research haven't found anything that could replace it now I'm at a little bit of a loss as to the world why the world hasn't embraced it massively possibly because it's a little bit cumbersome it's easy to teach but you know there are 40 topics if you want to cover them all in all different areas but one of my discomforts is our audience. And it has struck me again and again, you know, almost like a blow to the solar plexus, that permaculture is being taught mainly to middle-class Westerners. And so the syllabus reflects that. People have a garden, people have a farm, people can do these things, people can harvest water, people can... And, of course, my work for the last few years is where people have nothing really nothing so it's been the refugee camps and some of the more uncomfortable abysmal saddest brutal places in the world such as Kashmir which is occupied by enormous numbers of inexcusably human rights violating Indian army and the local people who would simply like independence are between Pakistan and India and squashed hard into this sandwich. The Kashmir I knew has disappeared. The people are suffering. The children are being pulled off the streets as, and thrown into prison if they, as possible activists. So there's enormous brutality unnoticed and the place has fallen to bits. The roads, the schools, the canals, the lakes, it's filthy, it's covered in dirt. And in the meantime, I presume the Chinese and nicking in and grabbing timber, and the Indians want the water. Because, you know, Kashmir could provide a lot of water. So that was really very, very heartbreaking, but the outcomes were quite amazing. Another one is Kabul going to Afghanistan for years and kept the interest up there, and I think that's my idea of hell. So that's, that's sort of a measure of where I've been and there've been the refugee camps, the Bangladesh and the refugee camp such as Moria in Greece, which you may have heard about, got burnt down this week. And I got an email this morning from Costas and he is asking we please publicize the help. They've got 12,000 people sleeping on the streets and the government wants to build a great big new camp with huge barriers and and electric fences and machine guns on the gate and keep people in the prison and they won't go because they're frightened. So I've run into some of the worst of human behaviour and some of the best. The two things that struck me is that permaculture is not reaching the Filipino workers on the buildings in Abu Dhabi. It's not work reaching the 
internally displaced people in the Philippines or the internally displaced people in uh, Afghanistan, 2 million. It's not reaching the margins. And we say work on the margins. Well, the margins are invisible. The margins are these people that we don't see. The margins are the huge numbers of people, whether they're migrant workers, such as the women in the factories in Bangladesh and Myanmar. There are probably millions of people who are not accessing permaculture and the way the curriculum is taught and what we're teaching is not suitable for them. So that's one thing. Uh, I don't know if you know Peter Bain in America. I sent him my chapter, Permaculture for the Crowded Margins. And there are going to be many, many more, hundreds of millions in the future. And if permaculture just keeps teaching someone with a backyard and some farmland or a nice balcony in a flat and a community garden, we have absolutely lost the plot. So there's that. Can I just make a comment there, Roe? I was just thinking, as we've worked in, together in Africa and Ethiopia and Uganda, because I was thinking, well, maybe is there kind of, in my mind, I was having three broad kind of segments in terms of permaculture is or isn't happening. And one is like you're talking, basically the middle class, primarily white Westerner, for whom permaculture is often a luxury. It's a hobby. It's, it's something they can identify with and, and brings meaning for, to their life. And maybe they grow a few veggies in the backyard or whatever it is and connect with others over this, this topic that, that is an invitation back to tuning into ecology and, and all that. So there's that side of it. And then we've worked together in, in Africa where we're with a lot of poverty and boarding schools and so on. And yet there was access to land there and there was, a, there was a stable land base where people could start to use that side of um, permaculture. And you, and then we've got this other segment from what you're describing where they don't have access to land. They're very close to the line in terms of poverty and starvation and brutality and you know, any number of extreme aspects of their circumstance. And so I'm really curious here to hear, because part of me thinks, well, is this a limitation of permaculture or is, it, is, there a, is there a point beyond which permaculture just can't apply? You know, I, I'm not, I don't know. I think it's worth asking about. So I've been much exercised thinking, if we're taking groups like this, what do we do? I think, as I found out in some of the big camps, there were 50,000 in Iraq in one of the camps there, mainly Syrians. We have to take it by neighbourhood. A neighbourhood is maybe 2,000 people living in tents with raw sewerage in the streets or containers, depending on where you are. Now, taking that group as a whole and you do design, you only do individual design in terms of can you get a UNHCR blanket and use it on your ceiling in summer for insulation? Can you get something to fix the dust? So individually, your tiny little living space with 10 or 12 of you, what can be done with that? So I'm working on very small scale and innovative at the level of filling plastic bottles with soft plastic and making them into a little bit of a wall or a place to grow something. Tiny, tiny. There are about 10, 12, 14 things we can do that people can produce more green, which has multiple, multiple functions. I mean, okay, eat it, sell it, filter, pleasure, privacy, optimism, you just go on. And I'm not making big claims for mental health, but it's obvious to me that people sitting through a permaculture course under those conditions where they sit around every night and say, what's happening in Yemen and who got murdered? And have you heard from your sister, your brother, your mother, 
your cousin. And often the news is appalling. But they would come to class and work in the groups. The value of permaculture for people to put their minds onto the present and what they can do is like a little mental holiday. Now, they're not all running around like Australians saying, I'm stressed, stressed, locked in my apartment for six weeks. They are actually deeply, badly bruised and wrecked by their experience, especially people who have maybe been in prison in Turkey for a couple of years before they got to Greece and they've been tortured. And every night they talk about what's happening at home. So when we give them permaculture, they take that home. And it's like a little relief. Some people would say teach meditation, but it's very difficult until the trauma's over. Very hard. And that's not what we do. We don't do mental health, but it has a mental health option. So there are two things. First, what we're teaching has to be community and small scale and achievable and accessible. Mm, I'd be really curious to hear, because on the one hand, in a specific camp or factory or, or whatever the scenario is, there's probably, like you said, maybe 12 or 14 simple techniques and strategies that can be distilled and shared and propagated and can make a positive contribution. And my sense was that in a way that there maybe there's a bit of a Trojan horse thing going on in the sense that as they learn those, it's getting their underlying thinking of, sure, you know, we don't have a lot of options. We don't have a lot of wriggle room. We're on the edge, but, but what, what is there and how can we start to find the resources that were previously invisible and, and, to, and to design our own solutions? Is that how you see it or? I do, because when we compare it with other things taught in camp, English and computers, the class will start. I mean, obviously, not everyone can do English and computers. In the big camps, it's impossible. But given that there, some people can get access to it because they need refugees who can speak this language and access computers simply to deal with camp management or UNHCR or uh, NGOs and things. So they have to have some people with language and skills. But the dropout rate is huge. At that moment, it isn't relevant or it doesn't distract enough. Whereas permaculture, given the great gutters flowing with water and sewage, they will work on those and they will take the drains and they will you know, a drain that's only a metre wide, they'll turn it into little shelving and grow things on it and do things. The photographs coming back are stunning. So there's one thing about teaching and there's another thing about their circumstance and then there's the third one and not someone else would have to look into it of what it provides people. Permaculture, as we know, is so easy to carry. You carry it in your head, you know, and the next place you can do it again wherever you go. So some people want to go home and they'll take it, some want to go forward. And the people I'm thinking about, they might be living under a bridge in Paris or they might be in a dreadful migrant hostel on the edge of Berlin or they might be, you know, somewhere else. What can they do and what can they use from this course, which is permaculture, that they can take with them? And it has to be a bit more than strategies. It has to be that feeling. We keep saying, you know, the problem is the solution. So what's your answer? What could you do just to simply take it away from defeatism? And then a lot of people respond to this. So there is the teaching. And I found of the teachers who came with me to learn to teach under these circumstances, only about 50% could do it. 
So I'd like to change that demographic if ever we're over COVID and work with the NGOs who've worked for years in camps mm -hmm. because the others still, like the refugees, were staying home in their heads, still teaching, even though we'd talk about it the night before and go through it, they're still teaching as they taught at home. Some people find it very hard to teach in those circumstances. You might have two or three interpreters who don't know the topic. You know, you don't know what they're translating. There are all sorts of stresses. And at the moment, I'm just finishing a booklet for teaching in refugee camps, mm -hmm. discussing all the issues around teaching. So that's been a huge thing. I imagine for someone, I'm just imaging someone who's, you know, maybe you've met someone in Australia and they're like, yeah, Ro, please, I'd like to come and help in a refugee camp. Mm. And they get there. I imagine one issue they must personally experience is just the overwhelm, you know, like this, the sense of there's just, like you're talking about the, the rising tide, the flood of refugees coming in. And I guess there must be a whole lot of uncertainty about what's happening tomorrow and what police going to do or what the army going to do or whatever else. And you've, done, you've worked in this field for a long time. That's obviously something that you able to hold you like you focus on what you can affect and change and you don't let yourself get demoralized or overwhelmed by what you can't yeah they go they go off one of them will talk about the food how terrible the food is now shocking and how they can't eat it another will say this is awful i need a massage i'm not getting my self-care another will get pre completely preoccupied with the filth and the traffic and talk about that someone else will say do drawings no one understands english they continue to write English on the board all the way through. Um, I haven't got time to tutor them because I'm talking to the camp manager, I'm talking to the interpreters because you have to work with them the day before if you can. I'm talking to uh, the person who's supposed to bring lunch for everyone that's late. I'm talking to the project officer who's trying to get some seeds and seedlings and things to do work. I'm trying. So, you know, I can't input into those people. I need people who are familiar with camps and not preoccupied with bits and pieces that strike them personally so that I have to deal with that. I'd love to hear what the ideal, maybe ideal is the wrong word, but how, how would you love to see this kind of work happening in terms of would there be specific training opportunities in Australia or wherever, you know, wherever people are coming from to help and what do you think is the, the most beautiful possibilities in terms of being positive agents of change in some of these extreme cases. Right. I mean, let's put COVID aside for the moment because that's something that I'm thinking about really hard if it's going on in a big way. Or COVID-20 appears in two years' time. But given no COVID, I would like to continue what we're doing is to take teachers with me into camps. And Australians actually have some of the best permaculture teaching in the world. I've met people who have come here and they say, look, Australia teaches better than anywhere else. And they want to come here and get the good teaching. And that's something I think Australian permaculturists should build on. Good content, good teaching processes, interactive, you know, a little bit global in their approach and understanding. I think that should happen. Um, but apart from that, I would take people with me for the experience, but I really think I would rather work with NGOs and teach them permaculture. So that what you need is to do this work, three things, you need your participants, you need your host NGO, usually a small local one. It's too hard to work with World Vision International or something. They're just always replying to New York about a toothpick. So, you know, they do good work, but it's 
difficult to work with. Um, so your host, your students, and your local people. Because when you leave, the local people invite the refugees if they can, or they visit the camp, or they build up the contact, and it reduces any friction over land or resources, and also it builds these friendships. So because you want the project to continue, you must have the host and the um, local as part of your group. Yeah, and when you say local, you mean from the local area outside the camp who has an interest in... Yeah, preferably yeah. residents, ordinary yeah. people who have just got a bit of land and they may build friendships during the course. So two-thirds refugees in the course and then a sixth and a sixth of host people who can continue, monitor and report back because there are huge language problems. You know, not many people speak fluent Dari or something or Turkish or something. I, I was just at a flashback of, um, you know, going through two layers of <laughs> interpreters in, um, in Ethiopia and how that got pretty interesting, yeah. Yeah, you, you are reduced to teaching a skeleton course hmm. for ideas you can get over. So there isn't any fat on it. You're not able to add all the lovely little chatty details that intrigue people. It's much more to get an idea through and get it happening. So, so that's, I've learned that about it. But the other thing is the next thing was to be, I was going back to Bangladesh and Myanmar and I was going to do a teacher training course with the refugees. And then they would have taken it on from there. It's all been cut short. I might see, because they have done a fantastic job in the Philippines with Myanmar refugees. So the Myanmar dictatorship and army pushed the Rohingya to the west and they pushed the Mon and the Chan and the others to the east. And they are less noticed, but they're there in very, very big numbers. So they're doing ethnic cleansing across the country. And I'm glad they're in the International Court at The Hague at the moment being charged with that. And I presume they will cover these other refugees. But it's the young people there working with the host who are already teaching other refugees, developing materials, making films. They're our first big successes of refugees. They're 18, 19, 20. And they're out there and they're teaching in their language. They're making materials. They're making it appropriate. They're doing brilliant work. And now I just want to put in a plug for Milkwood because I wrote to Nick and Kirsten says there any chance you could take any refugees who speak English that I recommend. They've got five from Myanmar, uh, from Malaysia, and they are UNHCR registered. They've got an agricultural science teacher from Kashmir. They've got one person, two people sitting in from Kabul five, six, seven, eight, and they just took two more working with internationally displaced people in the Philippines. They've just taken on eight people as scholarship. Just to clarify, this is this is for the, the online permaculture living workshop they run here, which we'll, we'll link to. Yeah, there are not many people who can do it. Most don't have English or Wi-Fi. But in these cases, we have found eight, and I think it's going to make a huge follow-up difference where we can't go teaching. But the idea was that permacultural refugees would end up being refugee-run. Shoulder aside the Europeans and the overseas people and gradually have it autonomous. And it can take its own shape. 
Yeah, oh, that's yeah. I was wondering about that. I don't know if you've heard of Carol Sanford. I've been she's been quite an inspiration for me. And she has a distinction between this idea of coming from a place of doing good, like coming in as an external benefactor of some kind. On the one hand, it can be world vision or whatever, or Bill Gates's outfit when they're coming in. I remember in Ethiopia we saw them giving goats to people in landscapes. We giving them goats was not the perhaps the no, most brilliant thing. idea ever. And, and then it, and in a higher expression, I see a lot of permaculture work overseas is you know, coming from a place of, of bringing useful and good and great understandings. But the ultimate is what Carol calls regenerate life, which is what you just alluded to, which is about supporting and resourcing the refugees themselves, the, the people you're working with directly, to, um, to grow and evolve whatever, the right solutions, the yeah. right approaches for themselves that they hold and we come in as a resource. And it's a fine line because, of course, there are useful things to share it sounds like you're, you're conscious you don't want to lose sight that the real goal, in a sense, is to, is to ignite their own autonomous will and self-expression, perhaps with a boost from some of the stuff they're learning. Yeah, so going back to classical activism, it very, very often came out of rich elites because they were able to take a long-term look and they weren't stuck in it. So whether it was changing housing or sewerage for people in slums working in factories, children out of chimneys, child workers, capital punishment, it was often a group. Slavery stopped because a group of people got together and worked for it. And I think you need a long time, but the actual door opening or the intervention, because the people are so locked into by language or work or poverty or whatever it is, someone else comes in and opens a door, but they hand it over. They don't stay there. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were, as I was explaining those two, this um, woman, Carol Sanford, she, below that she has one she calls a rest disorder. And of mm-hmm. course, there's got to be a lot of that, which is like, you know, you're going in and you're trying to run a course or whatever, you're trying to do good towards perhaps regenerating life and autonomy, but there's all this disorder. Like you've just, you know, so mm-hmm. much going on and so mm-hmm. often it must it has to d- drop into to dealing with that otherwise nothing is going to mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. so it's this constant dance i'm sure and i guess that's part of what it must be you've, you've got this huge amount of um, experience which means it's probably second nature for you but for a lot of people entering this work mm-hmm. early on it's it, you know it takes time to just make these discernments mm-hmm. So one example of that, which is very, very simple, but at Moria, there was no classroom or room to have a class. There was a little glass glass house made of plastic, but we were in there and then the roof blew off because it was just at the end of winter, it was bitterly cold. So we had to get up and move. Now people are sitting on hard benches. Then we went and sat in an open area and we were asked to move from there. Then we found somewhere else and please move again. Every time you have to move a class of 30 people and your whiteboard and your pens and trail through a place to find somewhere else, it's woefully inadequate. I'd much rather have a tarpaulin on the floor under a tree than I would trying to deal with this tiny, noisy, and people coming in and out of the time, what's happening here, how long will you be here, just non-stop. That's where the co-teachers get upset and they say things like, you'd think they'd do, you'd think they'd have a room, or it wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, this is the way it is and this is what everything is dealing with at this place all the time with the crowding and the dramas and the, the injustices that go on. So I think there are probably what we've learnt on how to teach and then the next stage is what embeds the project into the local community and I'm analysing that now. It's a bit slow because the book's taken me off. And one of the things is having hosts and local people, the two of them, and one of them will carry it forward with refugees for refugees. 
So that's what we've got at the moment. And I might forward you in the minute an email that came through from Greece today about the burning down of Moria camp and what's happening. This is a local, it's not the NGO. And this is the last remaining soldier from that course, so to speak, or the last remaining hero, perhaps, who is able to carry it on and provide some of the permaculture understanding. So the local Greeks open, that were on the course, they opened their homes and their land for some of those refugees to come, and that's continuing now. So, you know, you'd be mad to just go and do a course with refugees because they will get disbanded and go different places and they don't have the language. Because I'm conscious too that, as you're saying, it's a, there's, there's, we're talking millions and millions and millions of people and, and it's, it's growing and there's going to be more of it and accumulating in these largely invisible margins. How do you even think about making an impact? Is it just like, well, the people that you're able to work with are lucky, even if it's a millionth of them, or is it about the idea of scaling it? Or even the, I was thinking about this idea of, an, of the nodal intervention point. Is, is there ways that you can intervene? Because, of course, you're not just working with refugees. You're working with the hosts, with the locals, and you're also yeah. working and you're educating the actual NGOs and mm. camp administrators. And mm. what, do you, what do you see as the kind of the acupuncture points to, to, to try and help shift the whole system over time? Forget camp managers. Right. They come in and everyone, often they're a military person and everyone stands up and virtually salutes and they get two chairs and everyone else is on the floor. I pull out my card, go into official mode. They pull out their card. They give us a lecture on how the men shouldn't be here. They should be cutting bricks or something. It's only for women and, and everyone goes, phew, when they leave. But they've given permission. The other camp managers hand you their CVs and say, I want to go to Australia. Can you get me there? And they call you out. Every, that's why you need a second person every third day or so to hand you their CV and say, how are you getting on about getting me to Australia? Another one is obviously dealing with women and children as a trade and you don't ever want to see them again in your life. So there are all sorts of camp managers. I will do the protocols, but I don't want to deal with them. They're not the people who are probably responsible for all sorts of things. It is certain NGOs. And there's multitudes of NGOs and they guard their things. So if you want to do water in a camp, then maybe water and sanitation don't want you to because that's their patch. This started years ago. I mean, I could talk about this for ages, but I won't, Dan. But it's particularly challenging work, and I think you have to put yourself aside. I'm here now. My headache, my diarrhoea, my gut ache, my pissed offedness all has to be put on the shelf until I can get on that plane and go, phew, or get the last day. I was thinking about that in the sense that it's an extraordinary incubation chamber for self-development you know in the sense of pretty fast you've got to learn to put your usual patterns aside and i'm not entirely comfortable and a lot of people entering this foray would be learning a lot of stuff they perhaps haven't learned about themselves before and related to that i was wondering what you think i remember after some of our time working overseas i was talking to a dear friend in new zealand lou and I was telling her, I think I was even, maybe there's a little bit of pride in my voice. I was saying, so yeah, from the very beginning, from the first day, a core focus is how to design, design us out of the system so that when we leave, it keeps going. And she, was, she scratched her head and she says, Dan, that's interesting because the way I'm approaching this stuff is that I'm all about designing myself into the system, you know, in terms of yeah. where she lives and where she's going to spend her life. And I was wondering what, what reflections you'd have on someone who's maybe listening and thinking, oh, they're very astir- feeling a stirring of, wow, that sounds like really beautiful, meaningful work. Maybe I should try and get in touch with Roe, like I did so many years ago. On the one hand, it's amazing to go and be of service 
in other places. On the other, to what extent are you actually designed into where you live and got your shit together and to what, mm. as opposed to being a dependent consumer? And I'm sure you must have those conversations. Yeah, yeah. Well, for years, I mean, I was teaching two courses a year here and teacher training as well. Handed that over to the Institute. They've been working with youth and recently it's been a gap and I thought, uh-uh, we need to keep the local going. We've got a very strong and very effective local area here. And I'm part of it and so far as I'm part of the co-op and my panels and my water and glass house and relations with people. You know, we did a seminar on Saturday about what should the local economy be and what's it looking at in a post-COVID environment. And most of them were people who had deep concerns for transforming society. So there is that here. And one of the reasons for stop doing the work is partly to be more engaged in my local area. On the other hand, where this particular work is concerned, there's such need that if you can kick off something that takes off as brilliantly as Malaysia or Bangladesh or the Philippines, which have been exceptional, then you probably go to a new place and you would take a Filipino or a Filipina, you would, you know, you'd want a, a Malaysian to come with you somewhere else and build, but we're trying to build the Southeast Asian relationship or the West African relationship. So we're trying to bring in all those people who are dealing every day with refugees and IDPs. No one can do it. I think what we can do is set a standard because you remember the African teaching, what is this? A tree. Everyone says, a tree. What is this? A tree. And they all repeat the teacher because there weren't pencils and papers. So by providing interactive, different, self-managing learning, we are offering something quite different. And the permaculture syllabus is really quite brilliant. Even if you only can teach the skeleton of it, you get some huge uptake by people can see what to do and how to do it. So, yeah, I there's enough work for a lifetime, but you're not built in exactly to any one place or time. And I think you have to keep one foot in you at home all the time too, somehow. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. time for me to stop, actually. That's what's clear to me now, being home. It's time to stop going overseas. <laughs> Yeah, Not well, yeah, I think yeah. when I think of people I know that have justified their existence, <laughs> I think you've earned your, your um, you know, you've, you've paid back your ticket of being here on the planet and, and you've been doing this for so long. It'd be fun to have some links or maybe some photos or something in the show notes concerning some of these projects. Hey, back, zooming out, backing up a little bit, we started this when you talked about some of the concerns you have with permaculture and permaculture's inadequacies. Yeah. And, and as you're talking about that, you also talked about this idea of distilling permaculture's essence. And I'd love to have you speak to that. that. One reason is that that's that's exactly where I'm at with this project, making permaculture stronger, is what is permaculture's underlying essence? Or sometimes one of the phrasings that's come up is it's originating impulse. And the idea is to to get in touch with that so we don't get attached to all the superficial baggage and then we can, we can sort of grow and regenerate fresh understandings that are true to permaculture's essence. But I'd love to hear your take on on what, what that is for you. What, what's permaculture's... Um, uh, look, Dan, I'm a realist and not so good on abstractions. So, um, and I dig, do big views rather than small details. My sense of permaculture is that it's adequate or more than adequate, like a good soup when we deal with things such as the global challenges 
ecological good ecological understanding at least if you get to a point where at the end you say to the class what's this meant to you and they say oh everything's connected so then you can bring in examples and you know someone will say i did this and that would impact and that would impact that another one is how we deal with water soils plants and the other thing is zoning i find it quite primitive but I find it very comprehensible for people, whether you're dealing with a community or a neighbourhood. And the third thing is the community economics, keep the money in the group, meet your own needs. You know, all those basic, basic permaculture things are very, very helpful to people. What I've found missing has been any... Did you know about, about a third of the world's population live within 100 metres of the sea, Dan? Wow. And I've spent months trying to develop a whole chapter on care of the oceans, permaculture approach, and look at zoning, even very, very simply from the point of view of harbours and cities and fishing villages and agricultural areas. What would the zoning be? And developing knowledge of what seagrass means and coral reefs and the big kelp beds because it's not there and yet where is permaculture in the sea you know you throw plastic on the ground it's going to end up in the sea everything in the sea comes off land and then you start looking at how the sea is really the main controller of the world's climates it's not the land and you start to feel a bit sick about the lack of understanding of that in permaculture, it's absent. So I've finished a chapter on that and I've also sent it to people and got commentary. I think it's time someone wrote a little bit of a book about permaculture and oceans and took it from more than a chapter into a little bit of all of us understanding wherever we live, how we affect the oceans and how oceans affect us. We've done it for, for trees. I know, I, I don't know much about it, but I saw, I think Morag interviewed someone and David Hombrin was mentioning it to me, some scientist who is focusing on maybe kelp forests or something. Have you heard anything about that? I think we have to be very careful. My sense is that people who have trashed the land, and not everyone's trashed the land, but people are now looking at the sea as the new frontier because it's a long way to go in space for minerals, products, harvestable, We've nearly fished out the fish and destroyed the balance through acidification. So hence we have all the jellyfish. Destroyed population. Now they're looking at the seabirds and the sea vegetation as harvestable. Anything we look at as a permaculture, we've only got one lens, it's restorative. We don't have a lens for another product that we can harvest and grab and let's, let's look at kelp. You know, I think England or Ireland was looking at kelp as biomass but it'd be like looking at the amazon for wood chip which is what's being done but those eyes are now casting onto the ocean as harvestable destructible products for quick use mm. destruction it's very worrying one group in fiji calling themselves permaculturists want to put huge pumps and they want to bring the cold mineral rich waters up from yeah, the bottom yeah. What, what value can we extract? Just doesn't it? Big worry. Mm. If we think we've got boundaries here, nested ecosystems, they're even nest, less nested in the sea. So I just thought it was time for someone to try and deal with the major issues and let 
others take on the detail. I think every time we hear about a product from the sea that humans could use, the most terrible fire siren should go off and we should look into it very, very hard. Behind it, there's often multinational companies, there's more people after more. I just think bills, not bills, sirens should shriek in our ear, look out, be careful. So what we're advocating is a return to traditional, smaller scale, small boats, solving needs, and not eating prawns in Alice Springs or Delhi or Central United States. Looking forward to checking that chapter out, not to mention the whole, the whole book. Yeah. Knowing that for so many people, I, I mean, I talk to the, the Melodora Publishing folks sometimes and they talk about they've got two or three things that just don't stop selling. And one of them is the Earth User's Guide, second edition. You know, you've, you've had a, I, I guess I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that, that you have, your writing and thinking has had a massive impact on, on permaculture. You know, it's one of the recognised introductory texts, not to mention once you start, if you, if you start teaching, the, um, the syllabus stuff. How do you feel about that? Because I was thinking, you, in a way, you have made a nodal intervention in the sense of, you know, like that book and other things you've done and shared are like an acupuncture point that has percolated through permaculture as a whole. Do you see it that way? And, and uh, I don't actually. I'm, I don't think about that. What I am examine my ethics and moralities is the information correct? scalable, proportional, because I've always, always been driven by the right for people to know. And a book gives people knowledge, so you don't have to do a course. So if that is useful, I will write the book. But I'm not writing the book really from any other viewpoint, but to, as a resource. Yeah. In this case, it just turned out to be read by a hell of a lot of people. I <laughs> appreciate <That's> it. Right. <laughs> All of it. Yep. I'm enjoying the conversation so much. And um, there's a few, there's a couple of talks I'd love to ask you about. One is um, just to make it really clear in part to, to the audience, because just so no one has any illusions that when you're talking about permaculture, you're talking about a lot more than the land based side of it, you know, that, yeah. that it's incredibly important to you. You mentioned the economics, but the social side, the, the dynamics, and, and having worked with you in Africa seeing how critical that is that you're going in and you're, you're effectively applying a permaculture design process to the community dynamics, to the social dynamics, to the power hierarchies and, and you know, looking to enhance those as well as the, the actual physical land base. Can you just, would you be happy to speak to that a little bit? Just, I, just, I just don't want anyone to be able to listen to this who hasn't, those few people that aren't already familiar with you to make sure they knew that was a huge part of where you're coming from. Oh, yes. Well, I suppose I've spent 39 years now in developing countries, starting years ago in Lesotho without permaculture knowledge, and then choosing to work in countries of war, civil war, recovery, and recently refugees. And so I have chosen to, to be in places where people can't get knowledge. I think permaculture is so valuable. I'd put it in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the right to know and understand and apply permaculture. I would put it there, though it's imperfect and it doesn't meet all needs and it's probably not going to for the future. It's got severe limits faced with global warming. But I've been driven by that particular thing. So that, and I've also concentrated on trying to do it on the lowest scale 
simplest scales. So when you're in these places, you're living with the people, not the power. So you remember the rondavals in Ethiopia, and you remember the beds with a bit of cotton tied between two sticks, which are remarkably uncomfortable, but we had a mosquito net. So, you know, just understanding you're with the people all day, having meals with the people, living with the people. And so in some ways it's doing it hard. I haven't had the white cars and the interpreters and the bottle of wine in the freezer in the back and the guard with the gun. It's been very, very much a scrubby sort of barefoot thing. Um, I also stop asking for outcomes and just look at whatever you give and whatever you do, see what happens. I like to follow them because I'm curious. It's a waste of time if you don't get an outcome. You know, I might just as well be talking to a brick wall. So um, that's been part of it. You mentioned you don't have the wine and the interpreters and the white cars. One thing I do recall very fondly was those times where at the end of the day of teaching or whatever it was in Africa, going to one of these little outdoor pubs and getting a, like an Ethiopian beer or something and debriefing over the day. Very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we have the local beer, if not the imported wine. But the work's always so gorgeous, isn't it? Yes. So, so, so rich, how can yeah. you say that when it's, it sounds as if it's terrible, but it's not. Mm. It constantly feeds you all the time. I think the importance, and people in other countries, you know, they'll go home and do it. Remember in Ethiopia, some of the guys that go and they'd have seeds growing by the time we left and they're starting to distribute them and do things. So, you know, people sort of soak it up and go and do it straight away. There's no, I'll think about that and I don't know if my karma's right and maybe next week and I'm going to read some more books. There was just, we want it and we're going for it. And that is very gratifying, right? You've got the right stuff for the right people, so it's a good match. Otherwise, yeah, that's, it's as simple as that, really. It's not complicated. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that's extremely, I think, distressing. And when I was quite young in the 1970s, I went overland to pick up a scholarship in Paris. And I took some months to do it. And I went to Pakistan and India and Nepal and Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, uh, Kashmir, places I visited in the last few years. I have seen every one of those go back in human rights, I've seen them go back in land use, I've seen them bombed, I've seen destroyed and I'm exceedingly concerned that as we're going into global warming that these countries are still going backwards very fast you know, between the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, which was the food bowl and the beginning of settled life and all that gave people and didn't work both ways um, there's not a tree not a tree, goats everywhere, wheat, collapsing soils. That, sh- that People like Rumi wrote poetry to the water, to the fruits, to the trees, to the animals, the birds, the song. So I'm seeing that it's heartbreaking. It really is. And I've got no real consolation for it, a world that I love so passionately, passionately, that life is such a miracle that I'm now seeing it being taken apart and destroyed. And I worry that things like COVID are going to keep people indoors instead of out where they need to be listening to a magpie or watching the wattle or whatever it is, however simple that they can just get a breath of how beautiful the natural world is. And not our importance, but just love it. 
and that that has been one of the hardest things is that heartbreak about what should be there and isn't there you know because i saw the wonderful three five thousand year old agricultural systems in afghanistan years ago and of course armies destroy food supplies so they're all blown up and all the canals and all the water systems and all the kanat i saw that but here's something good uganda charles Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Charles was, uh, I think it must have been about 15 or 16 when we met him. Rosemary and I were part of getting a, a permaculture project happening at a, at a boarding school there. And Charles was one of these young students who, who spent, I think they holidayed there, was a bunch of them, and, and they took to the project and learned about permaculture. And, and since then, he's, a, he's got a permaculture business that's nationwide. He's, he's talking with like the government of Uganda. I think he said he's had permaculture is now part of all curriculum in all primary schools in the whole country he's networking with governments in other african countries it's like he's going crazy it's very exciting and it all started with i remember you and i we went to and gave a talk at, at the, the school the high school he was attending and he and he refers back to this he says yeah like so you walk in and here's this guy with a, uh, a phd telling me that agriculture is the way forward for uganda or something like that when they're, they're all trying to get the hell away from the ground to become doctors and lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that exciting to see what, what's happened there? Mm. And that story can be repeated. What they're doing in Kashmir at the moment, they can work and develop and have some strength and power because they're pretty powerless. And it's going into schools and small farms and being spread through the country. And now we've got this agricultural professor from the university doing the course with Milkwood who will insert it into her course. And it's often one person who carries the dream. One person who sees I can do something with this and the next thing you've got to file it. It was Ponar in, it was Da in Vietnam, it was Ponar in Vietnam, in Cambodia. You can just see how it carried on. So you'd never know that. You don't always finger those people. Charles was a pretty callow 18-year-old, 16, 17, 18, when we met him. Look what he's matured into. So can't you believe in people? Treat everyone as if they're going to, you know, do something phenomenal, I think. Yeah, it's beautiful. Hey, can I get your opinion on, I'm just personally starting to hear a bit of talk, just in the conversations that overlaps with permaculture about, and there's two kind of themes I'm picking up on. One is decolonization, and the other one is re-indigenizing or becoming indigenous again. I feel like I want to pay some attention to these conversations and, and find my own position. And I, I know that there's a lot of, it's a complex terrain and you know, mm. triggering, and, mm. and I feel like I want to walk into the minefield and, and try and make sense of it at least so I know what my position is. Do you have any thoughts on either yeah. of those? It's very, very big. Decolonisation is huge, extraordinarily difficult. I mean, you just look at the white government in Australia. They could have been sent out in the 19th century, couldn't they, on the first boats to take over their complacency and their arrogance and the sureness of their right. I mean, so you've got colonial attitudes and then you've got colonial actions i have got some aboriginal friends and talked to them and i said what should i do and they said just be allies do what is it you've got two ears and one mouth listen and call out racism whenever you get it Colonisation's almost too big for me i can't take it on indigenization i understand as really getting yourself deeply engaged in your local environment 
knowing every plant. I was recently at the Rohingya. I said to them, what trees do you know? And someone was reading and writing, and they wrote a list of 80 trees, and everyone, you can imagine, them all on the floor contributing the list, and what did they produce? And each of them could produce these lists of endless ethnobotany, like the Konso. We get this from this and that from that, and we use this in this way. Huge. That's indigenous. And then you know the animals that live on them and you know the seasons, you know what's right and wrong. That's indigenous. When you love it, you're less likely to hurt it. But you have to know it. So I think things, and indigenous people often support this, find a totem. Follow it closely. It can be a little lizard in your garden. How does it live? When is it there? What's it eating? You know, but I think it is attaching yourself. And you probably have to do it through your local environment whatever that is which means we need more and more bush gardens and more local environment otherwise i've, I've really tried to look at colonization it's it's not going to be undone possibly in your lifetime and certainly not in mine some of the steps are listening and acting so if any indigenous people where you live and that might be malaysia i don't know who listens to this if Indigenous people say we've got some recommendations, push for them to be followed because normally they're overridden immediately. I think the biggest thing we can do in many cases is to look at who's being imprisoned and who's being excluded and raise voices. I think we can do those things. I think it's pretty embarrassing to be a pale face, a white fella in the world today as it all comes home to us the destruction and the issues. But again, there have been some good things, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we can repair the past. I don't think being Indigenous means going out and killing a little wallaby or eating a body grub. I think being Indigenous means protecting and understanding and knowing and living as simply as we can. Anything that destroys it and everything that restores it and I find myself turning up for Black Lives Matter rallies here, for which there have been several, having some friendships with Aboriginal people, but not so much. It's exhausting because if everyone did, they'd never get their lives lived. I, don't, I really don't know, Dan, except that I carry remorse for my generation and the generations before and wherever I could intervene I would and I'm not sure where it is and that guidance has to come from Indigenous people not from my idea of what's needed so it's hard very very hard a couple of people I know are going to do things on colonization that when I talked to an Aboriginal friend she said to me that's too hard just start with getting us properly funded and listened to that will that is a start that's the beginning of undoing the, you know, that cage of colonisation. Thank you so much, Rowan. It was really beautiful, beautiful thought. So grateful for you were able to share that with me. And I have personally have one last question for you, Rowan. This question is for you personally, from where you sit after many, many decades working with permaculture, where are the places or the place of permaculture's greatest potential? Like, Where do you think that permaculture should be focusing their energy in the coming years? I think on the really intractable, terrible questions. Glacial melt, ocean rise. Five cities of Asia are amongst the seven cities like to be flooded by 2050. Manila, Ho Chi Minh City. Think globally. 
act locally, impact globally, and we need the really good thinkers to come up with these wicked intractable questions because I'm sure I'd love to talk to Bill because I miss Bill almost on a daily basis. When I think of anything really hard with permaculture meeting up to what I think are the coming challenges, then, you know, I think Bill would have some thinking about this. So where are those innovative, wonderful, stretching minds that we need that can start thinking about this? But we must think way proactively, and that's now, about the hardest problems, the fish sources, the air quality and what's happening to it, as apart from, you know, it's CO2 and everything else. It's, it's the global warming, it's the sea rise, it's glacial melt, because that is going to create more human distress than we can ever, ever imagine. Millions, maybe billions of people will be affected in food supplies in ways that are unimaginable. Where can we put our energies otherwise? It's all about building our bioregions. Absolutely bioregional. Look what COVID's done. If you have to get a medication, you can only get one script because it comes from China or somewhere else and there's no transport. It has shown us how dependent we are and that's bad. We become victims. There's often suffering and we've missed opportunities to build lives that should be wider, more challenging, more varied than they are. You know, I just don't like a world that sees everyone on a computer. But yeah, I think permaculture. Also, I think we need, uh, we need to think of communities, not individuals. I've long since, I don't see the individual with their house and garden design as part of the end of my course. It's what they'll do when they go home in their community. I think self-actualization that Maslow gave us, he put the individual at top, I'd put the community, a prosperous community. I love think, it. Love hmm? it. I, lo uh, I love that, yeah. Because yeah. you can get stuck on self-actualization, but systems actualization, community actualization. Yeah. Remember that question? It's not who I am in the community. It's how I function in my community. That's a very old permaculture thing from courses. And the other thing is we have to look at the financial systems and we have to disassociate ourselves and not cooperate with them in any way we can. All the banks, get out of debt now. Have a little bit of cash. Meet more of your needs. I reckon we have to really pull those apart. They've shown themselves as corrupt in Australia anyway. The bankers and they're back the same. Let's uh, disengage as much as possible. And let's get more love and joy out of life from being engaged and Indigenous and not being part of all that. Gorgeous. Ro, thank you so much. It's been a beautiful reconnection. And I love that. I know the audience is going to love it. And it's, it's such a deep honour and pleasure to, to know you. And to, and to, I didn't say this at the beginning, but the reality is that you literally changed the entire direction of my entire life. When I was going through, a, after a big swale fail, I was pretty depressed for about a year and you politely and kindly dragged me over to Africa where I met my wife and just yeah like a whole whole fresh direction emerged for me which means I owe you a lot <laughs> well I acknowledge the I acknowledge the gratitude and the, the significance of the contribution the fact the fact is right if it wasn't for you this project probably wouldn't exist so 
So thank you. Is there anything you would like to, any closing reflections or comments you'd like to share to wrap this up, right? Yeah, all the people who have supported me that have believed in me, all the people who have funded projects that I've put up. There's a whole lot for Quakers Australia. There's a whole lot for permaculturists. There are people who have been just stalwart all the way and put up with me. I'd like to thank, and all the people who've got out and done it. I don't even know who they are or where they are, but today there's someone who's possibly fighting for land rights or supporting someone in a position who's growing food with an ethnic group in the Philippines who are likely to be killed. And that's a, very, that's a project that's quietly being funded. So, you know, all those people, that's a weight and a joy, equal. It's balanced. Mm. And Dan, thank you very much for asking me to take part in this. I'm thrilled to be your 50th. Well, it started with you. It's well. This is actually I, I, I missed the fifty. This is like fifty three or something, or fifty two. Pretty close. But we'll try and get. We'll try and hit hundred. We'll, we'll make this. You and me. We'll get back together at a hundred, if not before. I'll be different. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Mate.